I'm not sure I've ever heard two words punk funk when brought together that somehow like negate each other's <laughs> Hello and welcome to another episode of 1001 Album Complaints. My name is Rob. This is the podcast where five musicians are going to break down a classic album from Robert Diamery's list of 1001 albums you must hear before you die. This week we've been listening to the Red Hot Chili Peppers, Blood, Sugar, Sex, Magic. Certainly a big seller and a classic record. And we're going to have lots of hot takes. We're going to break these songs down musically. We're going to play a bunch of clips from the songs, so don't worry if you're not super able to recall all the intricate parts of these this material. We're going to we're going to get you up to date, and at the end, we're going to vote and tell you was this record really worth your time? If you're not super familiar with it, is it is it really worth your time to go to go and get familiar with it? Now, that's a that different so, question than whether this is a good album, because the length of this is, well, yeah, we'll, we'll get, get there. to it. Well, yeah, we'll get to I it. I agree. <laughs> it's, 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 the question is, is it a must-hear album before you die? Is it a must-hear album before you die? We'll be voting on that at the end, but we will break it down along the way, play many clips, talk about what we do and don't like, and ultimately not just is it a must-listen album, but why? Why or why not, right? So here we are. Let's get right into it by playing a snippet of the Red Hot Chili Peppers' first single off this album. It's called Give It Away. Now that we've played that lovely snippet of music that I'm sure you've all heard before because it's been forced into our ear holes and many a TGI Fridays throughout the land, I'm going to go around the room and by way of introducing everyone who's here in the studio today, and I'd like them each to introduce themselves and offer a quick tweet-length review of the album. Uh, What was your week like? We're going to start with Tom. All right. Thanks, everybody. This is Tom. You know... Inclusion is very important in art. Um, I think that it was particularly brave of the Red Hot Chili Peppers to have someone who has clearly recently suffered a debilitating stroke and is suffering from some form of aphasia be the main lyricist and frontman. It's really inspiring and brave. They were ahead of their time. Ahead of their time. I know. Very woke. We're going to kick it over to Alan next. My tweet length review is this was a really uh, unexpectedly great effort from a band who up to that point was known more for wearing socks on their cocks than anything else. 
Excellent. I, uh, I think that was a positive review, but we're gonna we're gonna move it right along to the first guitar player we're gonna hear. I should mention today we have three bass players on the call and two guitar players. That's a hell of a lot of bass. But we're gonna throw it back over to the first guitar player on the call, Phil. Hey guys, it's uh, Phil um, back, and you know my feelings. You know, listening back to this record this week, where if you like generational bass playing, downhill, late Zeppelin, Bonham plays funk rock drums. Out-of-tune vocals, milk toast, shirtless, heroin chic, dime a dozen Hendrix licks, <laughs> blood, sugar, sex, magic is the one hot minute and one hour and 16 more minutes for you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. Well, you know what? We've got some, we got some hot takes flying already. <laughs> Luckily, we've recruited a defender for the album, a lifelong Red Hot Chili Peppers fan <laughs> and special guest of the podcast, Matt. My tweet length review would be uh, the quintessential funk punk album. The only problem is that funk punk genre is just absolutely terrible. So, <laughs> I can agree with both cool. of those statements, by the way. I think you know yeah, funk punk, punk is yeah. terrible. Yes. I think as soon as someone said the words funk punk, they should have known it was pretty bad. I <laughs> mean, it's 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 funny because I like I watched there was a documentary to prepare like for this. I watched this documentary. This is the record where Flea like backed off on the slap and pop. Like this is oh, yeah. he actually talks about it. He actually <laughs> talks about that's like a bassist. And this was like an important record for me whenever I was in high school. So, somehow I liked it. He actually says like, oh, yeah, I was like sort of known for this like really athletic slapping and popping. And I was just like, I don't want to be that guy. It's like, Man, you should have done more of it. This record. <laughs> One of my initial sort of reactions upon listening to this again, like this was also a seminal record for me. I probably listened to this album more like as a you know, it, like teenager than any other album, like period. And I love the fact that Flea, you know, everyone knows him for the slap and pop, but he doesn't really do any of that on this album. And I think it works really well. Yeah, I got to say, one of my notes is that Flea in previous efforts had been kind of playing at the top of his ability, like punching above his weight. And He's punching below his weight on this one, but that's like a positive thing. It's like he's beating up 12-year-olds. He's just owning this like left and right. And I really I really dig it. He's like so in control the whole time. All right. I want to get into some of the background of the record, but first I want to introduce myself and read you the tweet that I wrote. This is Rob here, and I wrote about Blood Sugar Sex Magic. When you listen to Blood Sugar Sex Magic, you're probably picturing a merry band of morons farting on each other and drawing dicks everywhere, while occasionally spouting junky philosophy about the healing power of music. Well, guess what? You nailed it. <laughs> Wait, are you referring to that scene in the documentary where it was very Lebowski-esque, where I think it was for Shantae, where they show like his notepad and it's just a dick that he's drawing? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they made it, as, as Matt alluded to, they made a documentary, or they had their friend made it, make a documentary while they were making this record. So let's talk about the making of this record, because I almost think the mythos of how this was made is, um, is in a way, more important than, than what came out of it, uh, showing my hand a little bit. But it was recorded in May and June of 1991 at a large house in the Hollywood Hills, which is now owned by Rick Rubin, but I believe at the time he was renting it, and they dubbed it The Mansion. And the idea, was, and this mansion was once owned by Errol Flynn. There's a lot of rumors floating around about this mansion, about it being haunted, about Harry Houdini living there. Probably none of those things are true. Jimi Hendrix apparently sucks the dick there. 
I don't. Okay. I don't. I don't <laughs> that's what they said. That's what they said in the documentary. Well, there's they're they're sages and poets, Matt. So obviously everything they say is correct. <laughs> no, they're poets and prophets. All right, sorry. I'll stop. So I can't tell if they're kingpins or paupers. Actually, it's confusing. <laughs> Anyway, this is the fifth album by the Red Hot Chili Peppers. And at this point, they had, hard to believe, but they had already kind of been through the ringer as a band. They started back in 1983, and they somehow got a record contract, and they (laughs) made some records, and then their guitar player died of a heroin overdose, Hillel Slovak. He was a kind of a, you know, he was a founding member of the group, and he was also kind of a spiritual leader of the group, really bummed everyone out. And so that caused the drummer also to leave. Notably, that original drummer, Jack Irons, then had an opportunity to join Pearl Jam and passed. But the good news is he stayed friends. <laughs> oh, he passed? He stayed friends with Pearl. He passed on joining Pearl Jam. Damn. I looked up at one point the net worth of the members of Pearl Jam, and I think the drummer for Pearl Jam is worth like $120 million or something like that. This guy must be kicking himself. That's a lot of heroin so to buy for he was, million. He, he could have been the drummer when he basically got invited to be the drummer when they were still called Mookie Blaylock. He passed, but he did connect them initially with Eddie Vedder. So he kind of stayed friends with the band. He ended up playing on the Yield album, I believe it was. So late, kind of later in the career. So I'm sure he made some money ultimately. But anyway, do, do you guys want to hear? Do you want to hear some other drummer trivia? Sure. Chevy Chase was the original drummer in Steely Dan. Oh, please, Matt, come on. Get what what, what the fuck on. are you bringing to the table here? Please. <laughs> I actually <laughs> didn't know that. You didn't know that, Alan? Come on. <laughs> I was. I'm being sarcastic, Matt. We all know Steely Dan trivia uh, like the back of our oh, hands. Oh, okay. You guys are. Yeah, you guys have Dan trivia. All right. Let's talk. Let's 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 talk background, and then we'll, then we'll get into this band and talk about what's wrong with them. And perhaps what's right. So produced by Rick Rubin. Rick Rubin, right, the sage Rick Rubin, is pretty early in his career at this point. The Red Hot Chili Peppers are on their fifth album, and it was for that last album called Mother's Milk that they, you know, basically each album had them progressively getting more and more popular, touring bigger and bigger. And John Frusciante, the guitar player on this record, and Chad Smith had been in the band for a total of one album. So they basically made three records with the original lineup, Guy dies of a heroin overdose tragically at I think like 28, and they recruit. They decide to continue on and recruit John Frusciante and Chad Smith. Flea and Anthony Kiedis had been friends since high school, and farting around L.A. as as avrats for a very long time. And one of the things they really disliked, huge surprise, is working within a professional recording studio. They they found that a little stuffy, believe it or not. And so Rick Rubin has this bright idea once they they hook up with him to rent this big house, set up all the recording equipment there. They Three of them, three out of the four of the band members, live there for a couple months, and it just sounds really cool. I think we can all agree that that sounds like a cool experience that we'd maybe like to have in our lives, right? Sure. I do yeah, like, though, great. how Chad Smith was like, no, not doing that. He commuted from home. He's, he's like, you guys are too ghosts. crazy. Yeah. I'm not waking up with dick straw on my face. <laughs> yeah, I'm too old for this shit. Well, so actually, interesting. Let's talk about the ages for a second, right? So they had been around for a while. Anthony Kiedis, Flea, and I believe Chad Smith, too, were all kind of like late 20s. But Frusciante is way younger than them. He had been a huge fan of the Chili Peppers in the Freaky Styly days and then joined the band. He's only 20 years old when they go into the into the studio here. So... A few Red Hot Chili Peppers kind of by the numbers things because this is undeniably a huge band. They're still selling out stadiums probably around the world. 
This record was released. They're massive. They're, they're massive. They're huge. I, you're telling me, buddy. So they have sold over 120 million records worldwide. They're one of the best selling bands of all time. They hold the record for most number one singles on the alternative rock charts and most cumulative weeks at number one. They're currently within the top 150 artists played on Spotify, and that is 39 years after their inception and many decades after they've produced anything of value. (laughs) I will say, I do find it kind of galling that Californication outsold Blood Sugar Sex Magic, I believe. It I'm did. Pretty sure Californication is their best selling album, which is fucking garbage. Since you asked, Blood Sugar Sex Magic sold 13 million copies, while Californication, released in the late 90s, was a mega hit that sold 16 million albums. So it, it outsold. What about something? Something like Stadium Arcadium, do you know about like those ones? They must have gone under Blood Sugar Sex Magic, but they continue to sell tickets. That's for damn sure. Now, Blood Sugar Sex Magic was also released at a very special time in music, we can say. And I think that might have something to do with their their impact and their success. It was released on September 24th, 1991, the same exact day as Nevermind and The Low End Theory and within a few weeks of Pearl Jam's 10 and within a few weeks of Metallica's Black Album. These were big selling records. A lot of killers. These were big selling records. What if I told you? What if I told you I don't really like any of those records? You don't like the low end theory? Come on, man. Uh, I've never really listened to it, so I mean, maybe I do. But, well, yeah. we have a podcast about it. You can listen to whether or not it's worth your time. <laughs> Spoiler alert: the podcast is me shouting at people for not liking it. So, and is probably longer than the actual album. <laughs> yeah. Oh, significantly. So, as I mentioned, the background of this band is Flea. And Anthony Kiedis meet in high school. They have a shared love of jumping off of apartment building roofs into private pools and of shooting cocaine into their veins, which they dub geezing. They f- wait, wait, wait. What, what is geezing? Could you repeat what geezing, geezing is? Geezing is shooting coke into your, <laughs> shooting a mixture of cocaine and water into your veins. Is this while then, you're jumping off a roof into a pool, or is that just completely? I, yeah, yeah. I think I that, that was that was uh, one of their main activities until Anthony Kiedis missed the pool and like broke both his angles horribly i feel like between yeah. this and the guns and roses when we did i'm learning more about like random drugs from the la rock scene remember guns and roses they were doing lo- <laughs> locker room <laughs> yes 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 it was like yeah. a bathtub amyl nitrate or something that's a tough call if somebody's like you want to hit this locker room or you want to geese yeah like what do you want what are we gonna yes. do here? you don't want to seem like a square it's a real sophie's like, choice <laughs> yeah so they originally formed as a one-off for a friend's party and called themselves Tony Flo and the Miraculously Majestic Masters of Mayhem. <laughs> I'm just going to let these facts sit on this you. This is back with like Hello, yeah. right? Yes. In like 83. I Listen, can we get this out of the way right now? Anthony Kiedis is like, he, he gets by basically like 60% of the reason he's successful is just bravado. And I can see why he's like got together. And he for looks a, good with no shirt on. He looks good with no shirt on. He's got what the kids would call classic big dick energy. He's just like, I can fucking do anything. Look, I get this gigantic dick, so why the fuck not, right? So I'm sure that they have a party. He gets up there with a badass bass player behind him and just scats a bunch of nonsense. And everybody loves it because they're all, you know, geezing up. And he's just like, oh, man, I can do this for a fucking living. This is great. They were pretty geezed. Although the Funky Monks documentary 
See, Anthony Kiedis says, I don't think he can be trusted, guys, but he does say he's been clean for three years when they're recording this record. I don't think that could possibly be the case. He definitely later relapsed on heroin. And John Frusciante, as I think we all know, was was already spiraling down the drain with heroin. And while on the Blood Sugar Sex Magic tour, as the band got bigger and bigger and bigger, he walked off the stage in Tokyo. And even though he was convinced to finish the show that night, he quit the band and went home the next day to go all the way to rock bottom and lose, I think, all his teeth in the process. Now, he was, luckily, he was eventually recruited to rejoin the band for one Californication, but he had kind of a rough go of it. Flea, interestingly, even though he used to shoot coke and do all these other drugs, according to his autobiography, Acid for the Children has never been addicted. He's kind of like the Axl Rose of the group. He definitely experimented thoroughly, and I think he definitely is the actual leader of the band, but he doesn't ever have, you know, he's never considered himself an addict. And I kind of buy that. There is a great clip of a Saturday Night Live performance of, I believe it's Under the Bridge, where John Frusciante is so yeeted out on heroin. It is ridiculous. He's so effed up. He plays so bad. It's really something to behold. I would recommend if you haven't seen that, go find <laughs> that, that That's clip. a really, really tough performance. It's tough. It's really, really raw. There was a documentary video that came out. I think it was filmed in Europe somewhere, like Amsterdam. I don't know. But where Frusciante is just like strung out. Have you guys seen this video? I mean, he looks. Yeah. I've seen that. He's yeah. like in the throes of it. Bad. And it's it's bad. He's in bad shape. Luckily, he had all that blood sugar sex magic money to ride him through the down days and get him back to, I'm sure, now being a ridiculously successful, uh, you know, human Yeah, guy. I mean, by all accounts, I mean, he looks very healthy, right? And given what he looked like in Holland or, you know, wherever he was in 1999 in that one video, he's in really good shape. Compared is, to he, is he still in Chili Peppers today? Yeah, he's on his, like, third stint, I think. Okay. Did they kick him out again after Californication? No, nah, he left. He did a few records. Oh, uh, okay. I think he might have left voluntarily, but I'm pretty sure he's in the band now. I heard him recently on another podcast, uh, Gasp, Rick Rubin's podcast, being interviewed, and they were talking about his time. And I think at some point, I don't know if this Amsterdam video is part of what you're talking about, but some other musicians, I can't think of now who it was, like made a documentary about him, about the squalor he was living in, about how bad it was. I think as a way of intervening in his life, like in the late 90s, to try to get him... So there's some footage like that that I that might have been I recognized. I don't know if I maybe I'm conflating yeah, that's, the that's what Amsterdam I thing. I don't know if that's it or not, but that's probably the one that I was referring to. Where he's just like living in this terribly uh, squalorous apartment with graffiti all over the walls, and he's missing his, a bunch of his teeth. And he's playing and he's songs just, that they're really just bad and poorly executed. Obviously, yeah, kind kind of a sad story. But anyway, he seems to be on the up and up these days. So anyway. This is the Red Hot Chili Peppers coming in on their fifth record. They're, they got a new producer in Rick Rubin. They're excited about him. Now, Rick Rubin, we should mention, right? And I want to get into a discussion of what the hell Rick Rubin even does. I know we've touched on it a couple times. But at this point, Rick Rubin had under his belt. He had worked with the Beastie Boys, Run DMC, LL, but also had worked with people like Danzig and Slayer. And interesting, didn't know this until this week, 
he had produced a couple of Andrew Dice Clay albums. It's kind of responsible for him. I've heard, I've heard enough. <laughs> well, here's what here's what uh, Rick Rubin did, according to um, the Funky Monks documentary from Anthony Kiedis. He said, if Baron von Munchausen had ejaculated the four of us onto a chessboard, I would have to say Rick Rubin is the perfect chess player for that particular board. So that should answer all your questions. Classic. <laughs> so, yeah. I'm going to come in and say unabashedly, like, I am very pro Rick Rubin. And I could actually say, like, I watched the ultimate albums about this record as well. Here's what Rick Rubin did. If you like, for me, at least, if you want to know what Rick Rubin does, he heard Anthony Kiedis singing Under the Bridge. And Kiedis said, ah, it's a song I like, but it's not a Chili Peppers song. And Rick Rubin said to him, you're in the Chili Peppers, right? And he said, yeah. And he's like, you wrote it. So that means it's a Chili Peppers song. So like, go take it to the guys and see if they like it. And that's the sound that they went forward with. That's why they're selling out stadiums. Like he basically created, for better or worse, like I, uh, yeah. But he basically created that sound for them. He was the guy who gave them like the, okay, this is what you sound like going forward. See, I, I yes, I heard that anecdote and I'm glad about that. And I actually think Under the Bridge is a successful song, a very successful, I mean, obviously it's a successful song, but I li- also like it as a song, believe it or not. As, yes, same. And so, yes, credit to Rick Rubin for encouraging that out of Kiedis. But I, what I don't, what I disagree with is that Rubin, makes a sound he's very hands-off well, i don't think he's making thing. a sound he's like i think he's creating so i'm gonna sort of vacillate between like mocking these guys just because they're characters but to be clear i love this fucking album and i think rick rubin is is a great producer i think that example you shared earlier matt was um where Flea's talking about his bass playing, there's another cut of Rick Rubin sort of like walking him through yeah. the give it away bass line. And he's kind of coaching him to not be as frenetic on bass and to just keep things simple. And I think that, you know, it's, it's probably just, you know, dozens of different little things like that, that I do think, you know, if you're creating the conditions for them to kind of do their thing, I think there's something to be said for that. You can actually see in the in the the clip that you're talking about, like Flea goes up, he does because the, the baseline to give it away is cool. I I don't necessarily like the song as much, but he goes up, he does that cool slide thing, and you can see Flea trying to overplay. And you can see in the video Ruben being like, no, 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 no. You're gonna keep it simple on the low end of that. Like that slide is the thing. Yeah, totally. Well, I think that, and I'm curious what, like, Rick Rubin had worked on directly before this, but I thought this record was, like, mastered, and they're, in that, the songs are real tight in and out, and there are elements of the bass playing that feel very hip-hop. The record isn't a hip-hop record at yeah. all, but there are elements of it that, to me, felt like, intentionally, like, this section should sound like a like a sample, Right. So when this section comes, it'll feel even more like a real. So it's interesting you say that because in that that same documentary, Funky Monks, it's it's strongly implied in a conversation between Rick Rubin. Not actually, I might have heard it in the interview with Frusciante where they were talking about this very thing that you're referring to, Phil, which is that he was known as a hip hop producer and they were excited by what he brought to the arrangement from that angle which is like muting things or leaving you know oh we don't need Mm -hmm. a guitar in the first verse it can it can take the heat in the second verse so to speak and things like that but in the conversation they seem to be saying that ruben had not produced any band with drums before but that's simply not true 
So I was I definitely li- not true. little little confused by that, but he definitely had that mindset of selective muting, and the Chili Peppers at least feel like, or at least John Frusciante felt like that brought some some new ideas to their arrangement style versus them just playing hard all the time, one hundred percent of the songs. I did see something that um, specifically like Frusciante was a little bit um, annoyed that on Mother's Milk the producer was pushing them to be more of like a hard rock band. And he was like, I'm not naturally a hard rock guitar player. I don't want to be just like shredding hard rock all the time. And I want to be a little bit more kind of laid back and funky. And honestly, you got a bass player like Flea and they're trying to push you away from like a funky sound and more toward a hard rock sound. Like he shreds hard rock. We talked about on that, um, you know, Mars Volta, D. Louse and the Comatorium. He absolutely destroys that album. But, you know, funk is kind of where he lives. And I think that this album is the sort of probably... I would imagine maybe a little bit less punky, but less punk, but the same amount of funk that they were bringing to those early, you know, days of playing parties and, you know, breaking into houses for crazy debaucherous fucking impromptu house parties. Yeah, I think you're definitely right. I think the amount of they played a lot more heavy metal riffs and things like that in their in their earlier days. And they kind of they believe it or not, they relaxed into it a bit on this record. So. Listen, I think we've uh, I think we've covered all the main person. Oh, one other guy I wanted to mention was the engineer on this record, Brendan O'Brien. Get this—he's the engineer. He's working in the house yeah, with them. Yeah. Get this guy's resume. He's he mixed mm-hmm. Pearl Jam's Ten. He's listed as the producer on Stone Temple Pilots Core and the and the follow up records. He's the producer on Evil Empire. He's the producer on Bruce Springsteen's The Rising. See, you just fucked it up right there. Now his greatest credit, he plays Mellotron on Sir Psycho Sexy. How dare you, Al? <laughs> I one thing I do one thing I want to bring up. Which I was going to bring up the Mellotrons me up. anyway. They're great. We don't. This isn't going to be a like twenty minute Mellotron dissertation from you, Phil. We can talk, I want to talk no. about Chad Smith about Mellotrons. I want to talk about Chad Smith and about how apparently when he first tried out for the band, they didn't want him to be in the band because of the way that he looked. And he described himself as having long hair, wearing like a do-rag bandana and wearing cut-off Metallica t-shirts. And there's yes. like no fucking way. And which is like what Will Ferrell would dress up as to like make fun of being the drummer of the Chili Peppers. I think it's fucking amazing. He actually was that if guy. If you get booted from the Chili Peppers or if you're questioned about the Chili Peppers because of how you look man i don't <laughs> that's pretty fucked up <laughs> okay let's segue into talking about the songs we played a little snippet of that first single give it away but let's just drop in on another section of that tune right now Everybody wanna keep it like the Kaiser. Give it away, give it away, give it away now. Give it away, give it away, give it away now. Give it away, give it away, give it away now. 
So we've sort of been talking around it. This was a big hit for them. It wasn't the biggest hit. It was the first single. I feel that it answers the question, do you need to write a melody to have a hit song, or is it okay to literally have one note repeated <laughs> for three minutes? I've always wondered about that. This is another Rick Rubin moment, though, because in that documentary, uh, Keita says he's just improvising gibberish, and he goes, give it away, give it away, give it away. And Rubin says, that's the hook. Just go, give it away, give it away. And he's like, whatever else you do, you got to keep that part. I just wish Ruben was there coaching Ketis through all his lyrics then, because the rest of it is <laughs> <laughs> actually gibberish. Ketis has said on this album that he was writing the lyrics, quote unquote, writing the lyrics, like as he's walking up to the microphone to record the take. He was just like, I got some kind of ideas and I'm just going to, you know, see what see what comes. He I has like a very jazz um, ethos. He know? has an impressionistic and like stream of freestyle baby. style to his <laughs> lyric writing, which just means he didn't work on it. Basically, <laughs> I would have thought that he really thought out these lyrics for like months in advance by how clever and sharp they are <laughs> well, yeah i mean how why does everyone want to keep it like a kaiser what the fuck does that even mean that's the <laughs> what i've never understood what the hell that even means also why does he have to say this three times in a row what i got to got to get and put it in you why there's a lot you can rhyme with that but three times in a row he enjoys sexual congress alan <laughs> he could have said uh what i want is i want to hug and kiss you come on yeah that's uh, there's a that's, that's a classic one. simpsons moment right like that's that's what we get from that is a classic simpsons moment i do i think though that the best line of this and i i've actually always really liked this line is he said uh feeling good my brother gonna hug me drinking my juice young love chug a lug me i've always thought that's a really good euphemism for a blowjob it's fucking <laughs> i'll just say it i've never liked this song i'm the right age to like this and i i've never i've always hated this the video was terrible the song is terrible mostly because Keita shits on this and almost every track on there like maybe if this was released as an instrumental maybe i could have dealt with it but speaking of we this could be cool as an instrumental it could be it could be yeah but Ketis insists on singing all the way to the end. Yeah, despite the lack of melody, he insists on singing and scatting. Especially if it's got that mouth harp in there still. Ketis insists on singing all the way to the end. The band is like <laughs> fading out, and he's still slinging gibberish. Like, he thinks he's... <laughs> well, he also comes in oh, at the exactly. very beginning, you know, with Crank It. That's it. Like, he just has to be, he has to be heard. I don't know if he's, like, insecure about not playing an instrument or something. Yes, I think that's what it is. The, the other thing on the mix, I think the mix for this record is actually really strange. I like I like how Flea sounds more or less, but I think the snare drum is even more gunshotty than Bob Clearmountain's Born in the USA snare. It's pretty abrasive. It is interesting how it sounds very far away yet very loud, right? I could I could picture Chad Smith as the kind of like play from the shoulder type of drummer who's just shattering sticks, <laughs> you know, left and right in the studio. Um, I, I actually kind of like the drum sound because, I mean, this band is the rhythm section, right? Yeah, if they, do, if they have a different rhythm, rhythm section, there's nothing. See, uh, well, here's the thing at all. I, I do agree with that. They are a tight ass rhythm section, but I think Frashante is such an X factor in this album. And it's so clear when you listen to One Hot Minute. The, he, I feel like he's just such like glue be, with all the all the parts. He wrote a lot of the well, most of the melodies on the song or on the album. I think he does not get enough. And Phil, you look like you're ready to 
uh, put me in my place here. I, Alan, I didn't see you do the air quotes on melodies. You should have. Uh, you, you were missing the air quotes on melodies there, right? Yes. Melodic elements. <laughs> I don't think Frusciante's bad. I just think a lot of guitar players would sound really good playing with these two guys. Mm, not, not Dave Navarro. Uh, you know, I... <laughs> one hot minute is not a bad album. It's better than Californication. Uh, no, I disagree with that. I was just going to say one quick note about One Hot Minute is, yeah, Frusciante left the band. They got Dave Navarro. But also, apparently, Ketis was so whacked on heroin that Flea had to take over a lot of the writing duties, probably both from Frusciante and Ketis. And so that might be why the song quality may have suffered a little bit. Yeah, because I think Navarro was a heroin addict. You're saying Flea can't write a song? I'm a little Yeah, kid. probably. <laughs> just to talk about the rhythm section really quickly, I really like like genre funk music, like deep cut Curtis Mayfield albums and stuff yeah. like that. And so like, what I feel like is all these guys individually are very good and they've got good chemistry together. But like, if you listen to a Parliament Funkadelic record, like there's horns, there's keyboards, there's 10,000 people singing. So like George Clinton on any Parliament record is doing a bunch of gibberish stuff as well. Sometimes it's social satire, it's more clever. But like when you listen, there's other elements that make it more interesting. And so like what I found is like Fashante's guitar parts will like capture my ear. He's playing really syncopated. He's doing some really cool stuff. But in the end, I'm just like, it somehow still sucks to me. Like, I'm just like, oh, dude, like, like, like I, I felt that I wanted him to play less and I wanted there to be a keyboard or a horn section to like. Those are some of the tunes I like the best where you get a little bit of keyboard like the next song we're going to talk about breaking the girl. I think this is the best song on the record. I, I know I'm no, I know I'm not gonna win any friends here. Like I know it's not the cool opinion, but I think chilled out chili peppers where Ketis is not yell rapping at me <laughs> is better. <laughs> but for me, this is by far the best best song on the record. This is the one that I remembered liking the most, even like because I went through a pay, uh, period where I really liked this record and then sort of like didn't and like violently rejected it. But even whenever I was like in the throes of being like, no, they're terrible. This song was always good to me. It's got the cool percussion breakdown at the end. It's in three or six. I don't know how to recount it. But but yeah, I, I think this song's great. This is, in my opinion, the best bass line on the album. Not for its complexity, but because it defines the song in a way that you take out that bass line and it's just a shitty, strummy kind of 
song about a girl that you have a turbulent relationship with, but you throw in that that bouncy bass line, and then I got to give Chad Smith a lot of credit on these drums. The the drums that he does, the fills are awesome, and the yeah. way that it, they produced it, where they fade the drums in, you never fade the drums in. The drums are not a fade in instrument. There may be a fade out <laughs> instrument with the rest of the band, but they fade the drums in, and it gives us the sense that like it's just been going on forever in the background. And you're kind of walking by this guy who's sort of doing this crazy brr, brr, drum fill. Very cool. I noted the cool ass drums as well, and they're kind of mixed down compared to the rest of the record. And instead, you get that Mellotron in front. That that mm-hmm. that cool keyboard that plays uh, sort of string sounds. The Mellotron was the thing that I picked up on this listen that you know I didn't remember going into it. Right, um, was like you know the first listen through, I was like, oh, it's just like Led Zeppelin keyboard sound here, um, and yeah, it really does add like a, a sort of melancholy maturity, right, to the song that is obviously uh, absent at other times in the record. Well, and it gives it a lot of contrast with the rest of the album. Like, I agree. I think this is like a spectacular song. The funniest part to me about the song, I know I keep referencing the documentary, but there was just so much good stuff on there, is when they're, you know, during the bridge, when they're doing those like heavy percussion hits, they're, they're doing them on like trash can lids or some shit. Kiedis is just pounding quarter notes while Flea and Frashante are like <laughs> actually playing the drum beats. <laughs> like, <laughs> they just mixed them out. They're like, ah, no, don't I got to say, when I watched that scene in the documentary, I was like, this is going to sound terrible. But then I went back to the recording and listened a little bit more closely and heard it. And I was like, oh, they actually rung a kind of a bridge out of just hitting random shit. This, this works. Yeah, it's cool. My favorite part of the documentary is this part in Breaking the Girl where um, there's some guy, he's like a writer for Hustler or something. (laughs) And he comes in and like the only song on the record that's not about sex, it's about a breakup. And he's like, (laughs) yeah, man, like Breaking the Girl. And like, it's about fucking like taking her virginity, right? And you can see everyone is looking at him like, what are you talking about, you piece of shit? (laughs) And then he starts going like, he's like, you know, with you're with the Rube now, man. The Rube's like sexy, and you can see Rick Rubin just is like not even Buddhist in that moment. Like Anthony Kiedis is like, this, he's like, this song's actually about my suicidal ex girlfriend. You fucking yeah. asshole! <laughs> like it was just so like it really made me happy. Like I was like, oh, glad I watched this. I will give Anthony Kiedis credit. These lyrics are actually pretty good lyrics. I think so too. Yeah, they're they're pretty good, and they they they. When you read the backstory about he was in a turbulent relationship with a girl and she was a model and was locker would lock herself in the room, threatened to kill herself and refused to move out of his house and stuff. Like it sounds like, you know, like, okay, I, I get that story out of the lyrics. I also like my my favorite part of the of that story is that the way that he broke up with her is he bought her a ticket to Italy and was like, Oh, you got some modeling gigs in Italy. I'll just pay for your flight to Italy and then just completely ghosted her and never called her again. And it's like, phew, they got that crazy bitch out of my house, trying to change locks and uh never return those phone calls. Solid All right. party gift. Class act. 
Classy, yeah, very classy. <laughs> the other the other breakup song on the record is Could Have Lied, which is about Sinead O'Connor. I saw that. What the can you imagine what that relationship yeah. was like with those two? Really cannot imagine actually. Like. <laughs> that song I find to be one of the more unfortunate songs on the record, mainly because I, I associate that with the whole later terrible part of their career i feel like the whole yeah yeah it's all all of that stuff stadium arcadium it all sounds like that song to me and i'm just like oh fuck back back to breaking the girl (laughs) i think kiedis is capable of writing good lyrics when he actually uses a pen and paper and writes them down that's i think that's the message here and if you're writing lyrics that's a hot take rob (laughs) (laughs) he's good at writing lyrics when he writes lyrics and doesn't just get up there mumble like an insane person on the street corner. Speaking of bumbling on a street corner, let's move on to the next song on our focus list, Mellow Ship Slinky in B Major. on the title <laughs> this is worse than uh what was the song on the, the clapton album d minor jam <laughs> is it yeah is, is has it ever been cool when you call out the key of your song in the song title does that ever work unless it's the key of life and no. then that's kind of cool I fucking love this song, by the way. I, I, this song what? is terrible, and I love it. What? I know. I I recognize that it is bad, but like Flea's bass sounds like he's using like fucking super balls for strings. The tone on his bass is so amazing, and it is so fun to play this song that I have the like I have a soft spot in my heart for this song from learning it as like a teenager and being like oh I my do God, remember this is hearing so you play. talk up this bass line back in the day. And it is a sick baseline, but it's kind of a terrible song. <laughs> the, uh, listen, I'm not. I'm not saying it's a good song. I'm saying I like it. <laughs> it starts promising. I think I like how it starts, but by the time Kiedis is yelling at you, "Good God, I'm racking my brain now," and talking about reading Bukowski, yeah, you got four minutes left at that point. Uh, yeah, you know? <laughs> I've checked out. <laughs> I like how, by the way, he changes the lyrics in all of the, in the, I guess it's only like two choruses that he does, but the one that he keeps is, good God, where's my sleigh now? What the hell does that mean? What the fuck are you talking about? I don't, I can't figure out any connection to any other part of the song, but I will point out something here. This is the first instance of backups on this album occurs on this song. There's no backup lyrics on this album, no backup vocals until you get to this song. And the line that they choose to introduce backup vocals is do the dog with Isabella. For me, this song's appalling, <laughs> but the only part that I like, I mean, appalling, 
The only part that I like is that background vocal thing. And that's, that was what made me like contextualize George Clinton is like, there's so yeah, yeah, many. For one second, it feels like a George Clinton song. Yeah. There's so many voices in a P-Funk song. And it was like, oh, okay, this is why it works for them and doesn't work for virtually anyone else. It's just like, I mean, dude, this song is a, a really, I, I, one of the worst <laughs> songs I've ever heard. Like, it's so bad. I, I will tell you, I also am a huge fan of that Starship song, Nothing's Gonna Stop Us Now. So I'm not saying I have particularly good taste in music. Some things just get in there and you have a soft spot for them. And I can't help but I like it. I like it. I will admit all the lyrics are terrible. Yeah, when he name checks, he says, I read Bukowski. It's like, yeah, we fucking could have guessed that. Read <laughs> I also, I mean, just to talk about Flea's bass playing on this song and on the other songs, for me, there's like, he's got that super active bass, like like the pickups are super hot and everything. And it sounds like he's slapping even when he's not slapping to me. It's like digging in real hard. Exactly. He's digging in and the, and the pickups are hot. And it's like, those, that sound has not aged well for me. And like, that's not sort of the sound of contemporary funk bass, like, most people were sort of going with that Joe Dark kind of sound. But yeah, that it, it's just like, I, yeah, I don't even really like the sound of the bass on this one. Well, I think that's why he switched to, I, I know he was playing like a jazz bass for a while, like later on. All right, now we're going to get into the bass corner of the segment, folks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, finally. But yeah, that was like the music man, I think, that that was uh, like real out front. Not not my favorite of his tones either, but uh, I do think it's a cool bass line, you know, in and of itself. But I like I like the tone because it doesn't sound like most super funk bass that you would hear. Um, and that I feel like that gives it a little bit of difference. It's really bright. Like the brightness on it is fantastic it almost sounds like there's like a bed of auto wah very subtly underneath it but it's just that he's digging in on those strings really hard and you're getting that little variance in the the note because of how hard he's pulling on it um so i think yeah technique wise i think it's a great baseline again super fun to play if any of you guys have some time after this and you want to like you know just pick it up and start playing that it's just fun to play it's bouncy and you can all go to hell (laughs) (laughs) we're gonna move it right along to the the mega hit from from this album called Under the Bridge. Sometimes I feel like I don't have a partner. Sometimes I feel like my only friend is the city I live in, the city of angels. Lonely as I am, together we cry. I drive on the streets cause she's my companion. I walk through the hills cause she knows who I am. She sees my good deeds and she kisses the can't possibly not have heard this song and it basically set the next 30 years of the chili peppers in motion 
What do you all think about this one? Classic. I mean, this is this is a great song. It's very unlike anything else that I think they had done up until that point, which to your point, Matt, was why he was kind of hesitant to show it to to the band. I really like what obviously what Flea does on this song, like the way he just outlines the chords in a cool way, especially in the outro where he's playing just with Frashante and they're they're kind of playing off each other. It's really tasty, but in a way that like if you're not listening for it, you might not even really notice the bass in this song. But I I think it's great. I think again, you know, I'm gonna defend Frashante. I think he plays some some really cool shit on here. I mean, I don't know what's not to like. This, this song's great. This song's great. I mean, it like, you know, to, to say something good about the guitar, I mean, it, it's an iconic intro. It sort of deceives you into hearing this like double stop, right? With those like those sort of two note like clusters you hear at the beginning and the end of the phrase. And you can play it that way, but is what it's really doing is like setting up this really cool stereo image that'll pay off with a chorus effect later in the song. It's 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 awesome. It's a great Classic rock song. I think it's Frusciante's most successful guitar part, you know, and same sounds great. Uh, definitely on this record, may- maybe of all time. And I was, you know, I don't know if you guys listened to the extended version on Spotify, but the fact that they were, I guess, doing a couple of those Axis Bold as Love, Jimi Hendrix covers live at the time, and they're on the extended version. That kind of lent that that made that connected a little thread in my mind of like the style of guitar he is trying to play. I'm, he's not doing it as well as Jimi Hendrix, but it made it made sense of like why he's writing parts like that. Are you telling me that there's a longer version of this album? Oh my god, we haven't even talked about the length. <laughs> How the hell did they make a 120 minute album? It is exactly eight minutes short of the wall. It is exactly eight minutes short of the wall, which is so long. Ugh. I have a question. So long. I have a question for you guys. Okay, so Rob and I have talked off air about like the CD era. For me, like it's the worst era. It's, it's the worst format because everyone felt like you had to fill at least an hour or whatever it was. Whereas like on a vinyl record, you got 44 minutes. And like one of the thoughts that I had is like, if we cut, you know, different keydish gibberish, if we cut intros, outros, if we cut songs like Mellowship and like, <laughs> are there 44, are there 44 good minutes of music on this record? That's like that, that becomes like sort of interesting to me because I don't hate every song. Right. And I don't hate every part of every song. I hate so much of this record, but I don't hate every part. There's a different way to look at that, that they could have made. Basically, this is like the length of two Weezer albums. Like, I think this is like the Blue album and Pinkerton put together, smashed up or about this long. They could have just made two albums and Frashanti could have ridden that heroin high for like another <laughs> well, couple of years. Here's what's crazy about that. Is... to worry about producing some well, of this and... stuff. But sorry, the craziest thing is that they still left the best song off the album. Soul to Squeeze. Right? That's exactly yeah, what I was going to get to. Like, the best song. How, how do yeah. they go through this song list and just leave that on the table like it's some um, throwaway like, B-side? They already had a ballad. I, I think that yeah. they, they were like, we already have yeah. Under the Bridge, and so we and, don't need Soul And to Breaking squeeze. the Girl. Yeah, they were, they were scared. Yeah. But yeah, let's drop in a little bit of Soul to Squeeze, which made it onto the Conehead soundtrack. <laughs> I got a bad disease All from my brain is where I bleed Insanity it seems It's got me by my soul to squeeze Well, all the love for me 
I want to talk about the music video for the song. Iconic music video from the 90s. I, I love that music video so much. Apparently, Gus Van Zant was the guy who made the music video. He also did all of the art direction for this album. And apparently, Gus Van Zant's whole thing is that Anthony Kiedis just has to wear at the least amount of shirts possible. <laughs> like, there's. <laughs> I was gonna say they they had a, they had a big budget for the record, but not enough for shirts for anyone in the band. <laughs> yeah. There's a there's a in the liner notes. There's just a picture of all of the tattoos that the band members have. Like it's like they're getting intaked into like L.A. County Jail, and they have to take p- pictures of their tattoos to see if there's any like gang affiliations or something like that. But. Go if you haven't watched the music video recently, you got to go back and watch it. It's fantastic because it starts off with John Frusciante, who's wearing the most amount of clothes possible. He has a long sleeve shirt on, long pants, and a hat that also covers part of his face. And then you got Anthony Kiedis with like no shirt in a purple light, just kind of doing this like hand wavy. <laughs> he looks a lot thing. like Glenn Danzig in that video. I feel like speaking of Danzig, yeah, yeah, except definitely handsomer than Danzig, right? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and taller too. And then my favorite part of the video, and I had not, I had not even noticed this watching it all the time as I did as a child, that at various points they just kind of have this like double exposure of Flea in the background doing like an interpretive dance with the bass, where he's kind of not playing; he's just sort of doing these weird like hands, like steppy, weird. It's it's utterly bizarre. Go back and watch it. It's it's quite hilarious. I, I love me. that music video. What is a Gus Van Zandt film? Because I remember watching Gus Van Zandt films whenever I was in college and being like, oh, these suck. He so did like, Goodwill um, Hunting. Oh, Goodwill Hunting. Yeah, that's the big one. I was going to say he remade Psycho as like a shot for shot remake. I remember that about him. He did My, my Own Private Idaho. That was pretty good. There was some, some movie that was black and white. I thought that was him. It was about school shootings or something. It was terrible. I didn't see that one. It sounds like a real upper. <laughs> Speaking of terrible things, let's move on <laughs> to the back half of this record and the song Sir Psycho Sexy. <laughs> up some controversy this is both among my favorite moments on this album and least favorite if you take away the words which i really (laughs) wish they had done this is instrumentally like this is instrumentally a great song i think so i think the the bridge is cool i think it's a it's a really nice groovy envelope filtery kind of baseline the outro to me is Awesome. And I think it is a little bit long, but I think it feels like kind of a nice little epic. But the fucking lyrics. Why? My my note on this is that this song is endearingly dumb. And that is like the sweet spot for the Chili Peppers. Just endearingly stupid. I wrote Marimba at 318 can't save you, Red Hot Chili Peppers. <laughs> <laughs> 
I think for me, there was this like, I've mentioned them a few times, but it's because Parliament Funkadelic's important to this record, right? And they're important to me. And anytime I hear a band, including Cameo, or uh, yeah, Cameo, who's a band I really like, before they were sort of the 80s synth funk band that, you know, became popular, they they did like, um, or no, the Gap Band did like P-Funk knockoffs. And it's like only one band has ever gotten away with that. When he goes, that is me. Like, that's like him trying to do like the second voice character thing that George Clinton does. And it fails so miserably. There's a moment in the documentary where you can see him recording that. And like, but you can't hear this sound. It's just him because he's wearing like headphones. <laughs> my brother, my brother was walking through and like stopped. And then, like, we made eye contact and then both just started cracking up, like, this sounds like <laughs> shit. Like, because at some point he does, like, a howl These enunciations oh, are horrible. God. The, I find I need to screw. That shit's terrible. And the funny, another funny part about that scene is he's singing it and he keeps looking at his lyric sheet as if he's got some kind of, like, scribe. <laughs> that- <laughs> <laughs> I liked how they were also the guys were so excited by this song in Funky Mucks. They were saying it was the sexiest piece of music ever it's recorded. It's funky. It, and I think the P-Funk analogy is apt especially with the psycho like those high falsetto things happening. Yeah. I don't know. I think if you if you replace the lyrics with something else and Kedis in general frankly, I, I don't know. I think it's a really good song. And I think it's a good sort of close out to the album other than the Red Hot. You're telling me that that deep inside the Garden of Eden, standing there with my heart on bleeding, there's a devil in my dick and some demons in my semen. Good God, Treason. no. That was treasonous treason. enough. That's poetry. Poetry. <laughs> well, I don't know where you live. <laughs> Vote. <laughs> Good God. Okay. Let's, I've had almost about enough of this, but we have one more song to talk about here. It's called Apache Rose Peacock. Where he, where he just like just makes up like a Dr. Seuss rhyme at the beginning, <laughs> sitting on a sack of beans. I don't know. That's exactly what it sounds like to me. This is the one that sucks, Alan. This it's is his tribute sucks. to the musical city of New Orleans. At some point, he says, "Just when I thought I had seen it all, my eyes popped out, my dick got hard, <laughs> and I yeah. pause, dropped my jaw." <laughs> And I like I even when I was even when I was like an unabashed fan, I remember that coming on when I was like around my friends and just being embarrassed, being like, oh God, like 
this isn't the kind of thing I want to be associated with. This, I, it's. I remember a Chili Pepper song that I believe was on the Beavis and Butthead soundtrack, and I just remember there was a like the, it built up, and that Chili Pepper's playing it broke, and then Anthony Kiedis screamed, and I slammed my dick in the dirt, <laughs> and I always thought it was so so strange, and similar to this song in in that cringy cringy way it fails on every level <laughs> it fails on every single level that you can like it's i was wondering about this you guys have listened to a lot more of these thousand and one best records like so two-part question so far have you heard a song dumber lyrically than this Yes. On any of the records. Oh, wow. Undoubtedly. Nana Cherry. Wait, there was also that song Milky Cereal that LL Cool J did where he just starts rattling off like name brand cereals or something. It's really weird. That's the album that Rick Rubin was like, yeah, I know I did Walking with the Panther with you, but I'm not. I'm not on board for this. (laughs) The second part of that question would have just been, have you heard a worse song? Like, I'm almost curious to, like, find a worse song than this in in Hmm. history. It's up there. It's it's pretty bad, even in the context of me not liking this record very much. So speaking of Anthony Kiedis's enunciation, I marked, I timestamped 44 seconds as his ridiculous line reading of mentally, <laughs> physically. But then I and then I listened further and he repeats it every single time. I actually, that was the first note I had for this song, other than the Dr. Seuss thing, the mentally or physically, like, why? Mentally or physically. Why? <laughs> oh yeah, that was my uh, that was my like he's trying to do like a Kermit the Frog <laughs> voice or something like that. I don't understand what he's trying to get get away with there. But you do get you do get trumpet hard panned. Mm-hmm. I believe it's left, to the left yeah, yeah. little hard panned left trumpet. It's not a horn is that section. Flea it's just playing a little the trumpet because I know yeah. that, is, that is Flea. I think yeah. yeah. Yeah, so Flea, yeah, so f- for those who don't know the audience, perhaps Flea started as a trumpet player. He was a jazz guy. He grew up. In the household, his stepfather that he grew up with, that was effectively his father, was a jazz musician. And it wasn't until he met up with that guy, Hillel Slovak, that that guy taught him, told him to play bass to be in his band in high school. So that's kind of interesting. Please, please stepdad's Miles Davis, right? Uh, maybe a later stepdad. <laughs> Miles Davis, the trumpeter. The I wouldn't be surprised trumpeter. if he claimed that in, in a uh, fit of hallucination. I think we should just start rumors, you know. <laughs> yeah, I like that actually. Yeah, uh, Flea's right. stepdad was definitely a violent drunk, so it's possible. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't realize until I was researching this album that Flea was born in Australia, which yeah. is odd. I didn't realize that he was born with the face of a garden gnome, even when he was a young man. <laughs> This, it, has the, it has the benefit of him aging well because he looks old when he's young. <laughs> I was going to say he's, he's growing. Actually, he's he is the guy that I feel like has had a relatively consistent style throughout. Like Anthony Kiedis now has got like the short like the mustache like, haircut oh, shit God. going on. He just looks terrible. And uh, but Flea is just always been Flea. He probably at like twelve years old looked like a that haggard old alcoholic, and uh, you know he's just been rocking it ever since. Good well, friend. this is an example. I think on the Guns and Roses episode we talk about how the nicknames really make the band sound cooler. But this is an example how one nickname, Flea, really ties the whole band together. Because otherwise, it's Michael, Anthony, Chad, and John. It's kind of like this podcast. <laughs> 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 and on that note. We're going to 
take it around the horn. And the only thing remaining here, we've talked this album to death. Is it worth listening to? Is it a must listen, in fact, before you die? Blood, sugar, sex, magic. I'm throwing it to Tom first. So I am going to vote yes on this one for two reasons. Number one, I, I like the album. I think that there are some some good high points. There's definitely some low points. I like the album. Two, I think the maybe more important reason is that Chili Peppers are still making music and they're still really popular. And if all that you know about them is Californication and on, and you maybe have heard Under the Bridge, that does not give you a solid foundation to shit on their current music and so uh for all of those reasons i will give it a yes with a caveat it is way too goddamn long and it will be a slog to get through but i think that it's like a russian novel you will appreciate having read it more than you will appreciate reading it you know so chekhov's dick appears in the first act (laughs) (laughs) alan what do you think yeah, I'm, I'm going to say yes. I think, obviously, for me, there's like the nostalgia factor of listening to this album as many as 800 times in high school. I'm not sure if that's accurate, but I do. I agree with your point, Tom. I think this, if you're a fan of the Chili Peppers now and you go to their shows, but you don't know about this side of them, I think you're really like missing out on a big part of, I think, what makes or what made them kind of cool. And the album is definitely bloated. It's unnecessarily vulgar. It's it's just lame on a lot of levels. But I think musically, it's it's actually really solid. And uh, yeah, I, I do think it's worth a listen. Interesting. Okay, let's send it to Phil. So I'm also going to give it a reluctant yes. It has just a little bit of nostalgia for me. And uh, I also think it sort of plays oddly well as music you don't have to pay attention to. Similar to Metallica's Black Album, though, this feels like the end of something. Like, this is the end of, like, the freaky, styly, through Mother's Milk experience. Um, It sort of brings them the mainstream fruition. Band turns really bad from there. But yeah, I think think it's a pretty cool record. I wish 17 songs were nine songs. I wish the... B-sides had no lyrics and flee on trip. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, well, I guess our votes don't matter, but Matt, what do you think? I will say this. I think, like, there's an interesting aspect to it of, like, the birth of sort of dad rock chili peppers, where you can see, like, oh, they, they found their sound, and that's how they sell out arenas and stuff and do the halftime at the Super Bowl. And that is interesting but if somebody were on their deathbed and looking for a record, I would be like, you don't need this one, man. That's an hour and 17 minutes of your life. You're going to could extend their life, life, though, a little bit if they have to listen to all of this. Yeah, <laughs> It'll make it feel like it's like four hours long. Yeah. It's just like, why would you have to listen to this? Imagine being dying and just hearing Mellowship and being like, who who told me that this? <laughs> well, was because a apparently thing. you have to listen to a thousand and one records. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm sitting on a sack of beans. <laughs> so yeah, I I think the record's terrible. Full stop. And uh, no, I don't think you have to listen to it before you die. Wow, contentious contentious room. I'm a little surprised by how the vote went. To be honest with you, I am also gonna go no. I've never liked this. I never signed on for this. <laughs> I, Nobody here is surprised by that. I kind of think Californication is a better record, even though I don't care for that either. Right. Yeah, and I feel like that. 
it's not even that edgy. I just like I took a listen through Stadium Arcadium or whatever the other dad rock stuff is, which I'm also not very familiar with, and then compared it to this. It doesn't sound that different to the punk funk elements on this. I, I just I'm not hearing it. And I think and here's here's wait, one one more factoid, which is that I think Flea knows. Flea knows the red hot chili peppers are bullshit. And of so course. as soon as he got <laughs> totally. as soon as he got a little bit of juice with blood sugar sex magic, there was everyone else goes off and makes solo records, which are of course terrible. Flea goes, I'm gonna play on everyone else's record. I'm gonna play on the Alanis Morissette record. I'm gonna play on the Mars Volta record. And he builds a career for himself as a studio, as a session musician that will Absolutely. outlast this band so when the aliens come he did a record with tony allen and stuff like that i mean he plays with ornette coleman now like flea is cool he properly set up his legacy is my point so it's a no from me i was going to say that i've noticed over the course of the podcast that i'm not sure i've ever heard two words punk funk when brought together that somehow like negate each other so powerfully right like undo each other so powerfully okay well that is that the chili peppers you made it one more accolade on your dad rock pile it was a three to two vote you squeaked in you're on the list baby issue resolved for now until we get to californication i imagine but uh, the only thing that uh, remains for us to do this week is to get our homework for next week. So I'm going to kick it over to Tom for that. Excellent. All right. Thank you very much for sticking around to the bitter end of this podcast. And uh, we are excited to move on to hopefully an album that will come in under an hour. We'll see if we can make that happen. <laughs> I, I don't know if that's <laughs> if that's in the cards or not, but we are going to bust out that albinator and we are going to see what is coming. So... Without any further ado, drum roll, please. We will be listening to the band is spiritualized. I have never heard of them before. And the album is laser guided melodies. And that's a pretty stupid album name. So I don't know if I'm excited. <laughs> Let's for this play guess the genre because I've never heard this either. <laughs> no- noisy indie bullshit. Power pop. You think it's like a uh, shoegazy kind of stuff? I think so. I saw these guys once at a at a small festival, and I just remember the lead singer faced like his back was to the audience, and so I dubbed them assholes forever. <laughs> I had one one other thought, which is like, can you think of a genre worse than <laughs> punk punk? New metal, mm. rap rock. Okay, got two there. That, that works. Okay, let me introduce you to a little album called uh, Devil Without a Cause, <laughs> a kid rock. What's the one hot dog flavored water? Is that the uh, Limp Biscuit? <laughs> oh, uh, chocolate starfish and the hot dog flavored water. Jesus yeah. Christ. On the list. No, on the list. It okay. It's been a lovely conversation, a journey, if I may say, with you fellows. And uh, to the dear audience, if you think we got it right, if you think we got it wrong, either way, we'd love to hear about it. Put this on your Chili Peppers backslash Dad Rock forum and get us yelled at, or email us over at 1001albumcomplaints at Gmail. We'd love to hear from you. We'll take everything you say into our hearts, and then if you disagree with us we'll throw in the trash obviously with that we're going to close it out for this week of 1001 album complaints i have been rob i've been alan i've been tom i've been phil i have been matt boosh 